Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning, everybody, again. And hello to all of you who are with us online right now, worshiping from many different locations. Maybe you're waking up at your hotel room because you traveled to an outstanding college football game yesterday. <laughs> a, uh, a quick update on our partnership in Haiti. Last week, I had the privilege of speaking to hundreds of pastors uh, in this beautiful nation. And the following day, I got to meet with 65 of them. Just for context, we were anticipating 50. 65 came and they attended the commencement of a two-year pastoral training school uh, where not just pastors are coming, but people who care about learning and growing in pastoral care and in uh, proclamation of God's word in their villages and in their communities. Um, And in case you've missed this announcement in previous weeks, Redeemer Church is fully funding this two-year program for these pastors. And I think you should uh, give an applause to Jesus for this great news. Um, The two pastors that are leading this school, Pastor Keenan and Pastor Samuel, they express their gratitude to the Redeemer family for your generosity, and they also want any of you who have any kind of training in exegesis, hermeneutics, uh, church history, pastoral care, counseling, any of you who are passionate about those, they want you to come and participate by teaching there at the school. So if that interests you, uh, please reach out to Amy, Senea, or myself. Today we begin a six-week series in which we're going to study every chapter of Ephesians. A brief introduction, though. Week one, I get to introduce Ephesians before we dive into the text. Ephesians is a theologically-based, pastorally-oriented letter written to a circle of churches in Asia Minor. And in this letter, Paul addresses two pragmatic concerns. One is the internal unity of these congregations. And two, the need for a distinctively Christian lifestyle in a pagan environment. Paul had been to Ephesus previously, and you read about his adventures in Acts chapter 18 and 19. And we read, and I love this, uh, because we're so sensitive in today's world, we read that for three months there, he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. Miracles were happening there in that early church. In fact, handkerchiefs that had touched Paul were then taken to the sick, and the sick would touch the handkerchief, and they were being healed. I mean, radical movements and and miracles were taking place. There's a problem, though. In the same city was a famous temple built for the Greek goddess Artemis. There was a prominent silversmith named Demetrius, and he spoke up. He was making these little statues of Artemis, these little icons of Artemis that people would come and go from the temple, and as they left, they would purchase these little statues and take them back to their homes and put it on their shelf. Here's the problem. More and more people were converting to Christianity, and less and less people were coming to the temple of Artemis, and his business started to struggle. So he calls all of the local craftsmen together 
And in Acts 19, 25 through 27, we read that he said, men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in, in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There's maybe a little of the persuasive arguing that Paul was doing. Man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess, Artemis, will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the whole province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So the men got furious. Isn't it amazing when one person speaks up and shares their opinion, everybody else can start to rally? They don't even know why they're angry. He's angry, so I'm going to be mad with him. And they begin to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. Acts 19, 29. Now remember, the gospel is spreading. Churches are being planted. Miracles are happening. The sick are being cured. But all of a sudden, Acts 19, 29, the whole city was in an uproar. And it says that they shouted for two hours, great is Artemis. So what did Paul do? He split. He left town. And I share that background because I want you to understand and know the context to which Paul was writing, the context that he remembered when he wrote this letter. He knew what was happening among the people. Christian converts at the time were all actively engaged in evangelism. They wanted this gospel to spread, and Gentiles were converting daily and joining the church. But they were converting from a Hellenistic background of religion, mysticism, magic, mythology, and astrology. So Ephesians was not written only to reinforce a Christian's understanding of redemption in Christ, but also to help explain what a Christian lifestyle looked like, consistent with your salvation, to a large audience with a pagan past. So in case you're missing it here, what I'm telling you is that Ephesians is just as needed today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as it was in the first century in Ephesus. So I'm going to share nine prominent themes with you. If you have your pen ready, you can write these down, and they'll appear on the screen as well. But as always, I get made fun of sometimes by my colleagues by how many lists I have in my sermons. Um, if I ever have material that you want and you don't want to write it down right now, just email me and I'll email you back. But you'll see nine prominent themes throughout Ephesians that we'll study over the next six weeks. One, the greatness of God. Paul stresses God's grand plan, that God has a will and it encompasses all of humanity throughout all human history. Two, the exalted Christ. The emphasis of Christ's role in bringing all of history to completion. Three, salvation. We read that salvation is by faith alone and it is apart from any human works. 
or merit. We cannot work or earn or deserve salvation. Four, the status of believers. And we see this through 34 different mentions of the word in Christ, describing solidarity of Christ and his followers. Five, unity, as Bennett just prayed over the church, unity of Jew and Gentile. The cross is where all division and hostility are replaced with love and unity. I'll be right here. Anybody want to say amen to that? The cross is where all division and all hostility are replaced by love and unity. Come on, y'all got to interact more with me. Six, struggle with evil. It's real. By virtue of our union with Christ, Paul writes that we have power to resist vicious attacks from our enemy. Seven, the ethical obligation of believers. Paul insisted that believers need to get rid of this pre-conversion conduct and behaviors. Uh, My predecessor, Bill Clark, our beloved founding pastor, Bill Clark, I love the quote of his where he said, in the church today, there are far too many people who are far more educated than their level of obedience. He stepped on your toe, not mine. There's an ethical obligation of believers. Number eight, ministry to the Gentile. There's a clear call on the Apostle Paul's life to extend God's favor to all people. And lastly, number nine is the church. Paul spoke of the church as a universal, unified organism, not to be isolated or individualistic. Ephesians, according to one theologian, is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most supreme compilation of our holy Christian faith. One professor from my seminary calls Ephesians one of the divinest compositions of man, the Bach of the Bible, the Switzerland of the New Testament, and the crown and climax of Pauline theology. New Testament scholar James Dunn writes that if theology is measured in terms of articulation of Christian belief, then Paul's letters laid a foundation for Christian theology, which has never been rivaled or superseded. It is important, therefore, for each generation to reflect afresh on Paul's theology. That's what we're doing right now. I share these quotes from scholars and theologians to entice you. I don't want Ephesians to be a 25 to 30 minute focus of yours just six times over the next month and a half but hopefully you are enticed to dig in, to lean in, to study this text on your own, with your family, with your small group, with anybody. Get together and lean into the text with one another. That was all right. That concludes my introduction to Ephesians. Now let's get to my 45-minute sermon. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 is a prayer of enlightenment. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the might, listen to this, the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So scientists have proven that baby ducks will imprint soon after their birth. To imprint means that they attach to the first thing that they see, and then they go on believing that they are that very thing. If mama duck is nearby, then this thing happens well, and the duck knows it's a duck, and it goes on living a happy life as a duck. But this phenomenon can occasionally backfire. Uh, There was a baby duck who hatched under the watchful eye of a motherly golden retriever. So the duck thought that the dog was its mother. It followed the dog everywhere. It slept with the dog at night. It sat on the porch during the day with the dog to escape the afternoon heat. It was imitating the dog. So... For example, a car would pull into the driveway and the duck would run out from under the front porch, quacking aggressively and pecking at the tires of the vehicle, along with its golden retriever mother. In many ways, Christians can be like ducks. We can deal with similar confusion regarding our identity in Christ, because we were born into and grew up in a fallen world. So we learn the ways of this fallen world. We imprint. And even after salvation, when Jesus made that massive exchange, replacing the old woman, the old man, with a new heart in Christ, a new creation. We often don't see ourselves correctly. We live our lives like the thing that we think we are or maybe something we want to be instead of living our life like the thing that we are. And that's a new creation with a new heart. Maybe you've heard me say before in sermons that when you sin, It's not because you're a horrible person. No, no, you're a saint. Saint is your identity. Sin, though, is your condition. And when we sin, we're still getting used to the new heart that Christ has given us. Instead of swimming, 
and grooming our feathers and laying eggs or chasing cars and harassing the cat. We imprint. We behave differently. A personal illustration to further this point. I recently had the privilege of playing in the Oklahoma State Pro-Am Golf Tournament. I don't know if you've ever stepped foot on this marvelous golf course, but it is extravagant. For context, I'm sooner born and I'm sooner bred. And I appreciate many of you who still extend your friendship to me in spite of this. I am a graduate of the University of Oklahoma. So pulling into Karsten Creek that day, I was immediately out of my context, immediately out of my comfort zone. The sea of orange had me insanely disoriented. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who I could trust. (laughs) Furthermore, did somebody say amen? Oh my goodness. Furthermore, I have an OU golf bag. So from the moment I pulled up to the bag drop, I'm already getting persecuted. The pro shop is decorated from floor to ceiling with trophies and national championships and plaques, and it's really quite impressive. I even had a wonderful conversation with Ricky Fowler. Suddenly, I started to feel like an OSU golf fan. And as I checked in, one of the items in my goodie bag was a dry-fit Oklahoma State shirt. I took off my shirt right there in line, not kidding you, and I put on this OSU golf shirt. I found myself wearing orange. This is a sermon about unity. So control yourself. Who is this guy? I'm an OU grad, and I find myself stuck in the ways of the world. I was imprinting as a cowboy. And some of you saw that photo, and you even sent me text messages and complimented how I looked in orange. Ephesians 1 reinforces true identity for Christians. No more imprinting in the ways of this world. Just as Paul was calling the early church back into alignment with Christ, the text can do that for us today. In particular, I want to draw your attention to three things that Paul prayed that we would be enlightened to as believers. Number one, enlightenment to know the hope to which we are called. May the eyes of our hearts, as we sang earlier today, the core and center of our being be enlightened, flooded by the light of the Holy Spirit, so that we can know and cherish the divine guarantee of God, our hope. This is where we find our strength and our courage to live in the present because the hope that we have for the future. We hope because God's promises to us in Christ so often contradict the reality that we live in today. Number two, enlightenment to know riches, know the riches of his glorious 
inheritance. There is imagery throughout Scripture of the promised land, of a banquet table, inherited promises from God. And Paul draws our attention to these future riches to help us see and discover our need, our depravity, our spiritual poverty. Our inheritance is freedom from sin, fellowship with God, and heavenly possessions that await us. So we guard our hearts, friends. We have to guard our hearts from believing that our earthly wealth surpasses our heavenly inheritance. It doesn't. God has something better for you in the life to come. Keep your hope in that, not in this. There's more for you, and it's better than the very best you've ever had or experienced in this life. I love how C.S. Lewis challenges us in The Weight of Glory, where he writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward... And the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Does that challenge you today? It challenges me. Are we afraid of asking God for more? I believe C.S. Lewis is right. I think we're far too easily pleased by the things of this world Paul wants us to be enlightened to the glorious riches of our inheritance in the life to come. So if you're dabbling in inheritances here that distract you from the one that's to come, put down your mud pies and enjoy the promises of God. Live with a daily anticipation and enthusiasm for our future inheritance. Third, Enlightenment to know his incomparably great power. Verses 20 through 23 summarize his power. God raised, listen, if you're thinking about lunch, check back in right now. Here's what I want you to hear. God raised Jesus from the dead. The death of Jesus Christ was the death of death. Is this sinking in for anybody today? God seated Jesus at his right hand, and later in Ephesians 2.6, we read that he seats us there with Jesus. God set Jesus over all demonic powers. He disarmed rulers and authorities, and he put them to shame. God gave Jesus authority over his church, Do you know what that means to me? Do you want to know how I personally interpret this passage? Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of Redeemer Church. It's him and him alone. And finally, where God rules, we will rule as well. He will fill all creation with the fullness of him, which is you, his body of believers. Why is this power so important? 
course we have hope. We have the glorious inheritance to come, but what about his power today? Why is that important? It's because we have an enemy. He has a name. It's Satan. And he's real. And I've got news for you today, for all of you who are in Christ Jesus, and he's your Lord and Savior, Satan hates us. He hates you. He hates your worship. He despises that you're here today. He hates this church. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your upright character. He hates your integrity. He hates your ministry. And he hates your Christian influence on others. If you are unconcerned today or oblivious altogether about the spiritual war that is going on around you, then as your brother in Christ, I lovingly say, wake up. Wake up today. Stand your ground. As Christ was on the cross, sin was defeated. But sin still must be fought every day. Also on the cross, Satan was defeated. But Satan still must be fought every day. Thankfully, we have the armor. We have been equipped for the fight. Jesus already accomplished the win, and the Holy Spirit will do the heavy lifting as many days as you have on this earth. But we still have to be engaged and evolved in this spiritual war. Keep fighting with the power of Jesus on your side because of hope, because of our great inheritance to come, and because of the power of Jesus Christ, because of the authority of his word, because of his blood and his never-ending life, we win. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we win. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, please give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation today so that we may know you better. Open the eyes of our hearts and enlighten us so that we may know the hope to which you have called us. We may know the glorious inheritance you have reserved for us. That we may know your incomparably great power for us who believe. Power that raised Christ from the dead power that sat him in the heavenly realms, power that is above all rule and authority, and the same power that helps us in our spiritual battles this day. For hope, for inheritance, for power, we express our praise and our gratitude as best as we can. Through Christ, the one who walked out of the tomb, we pray. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, 
visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.